Section 7 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. J. Habakkuk Jepson's Statement, Part 4. The first gray of daylight was visible in the east as we passed through the surge and reached the shore. Leaving half a dozen men with the canoes, the rest of the Negroes set off through the sand hills leading me with them, but treating me very gently and respectfully. It was difficult walking, as we sank over our ankles in the loose, shifting sand at every step, and I was nearly dead beat by the time we reached the native village, or town, rather, for it was a place of considerable dimensions. The houses were conical structures, not unlike beehives, and were made of compressed seaweed, cemented over with a rude form of mortar there being neither stick nor stone upon the coast nor anywhere within many hundreds of miles. As we entered the town, an enormous crowd of both sexes came swarming out to meet us, beating tom-toms and howling and screaming. On seeing me, they redoubled their yells and assumed a threatening attitude, which was instantly quelled by a few words shouted by my escort. A buzz of wonder succeeded the war cries and yells of the moment before, and the whole dense mass proceeded down the broad central street of the town, having my escort and myself in the center. My statement hitherto may seem so strange as to excite doubt in the minds of those who do not know me, but it was the fact which I am now about to relate which caused my own brother-in-law to insult me by disbelief. I can but relate the occurrence in the simplest words and trust the chance and time to prove their truth. In the center of this main street there was a large building, formed in the same primitive way as the others, but towering high above them. A stockade of beautifully polished ebony rails was planted all round it. The framework of the door was formed by two magnificent elephant tusks sunk in the ground on each side and meeting at the top, and the aperture was closed by a screen of native cloth richly embroidered with gold. We made our way to this imposing-looking structure, but on reaching the opening in the stockade, the multitude stopped and squatted down upon their hams, while I was led through into the enclosure by a few of the chiefs and elders of the tribe. Goring accompanying us, and in fact, directing the proceedings. On reaching the screen which closed the temple, for such it evidently was, my hat and shoes were removed, and I was led in, a venerable old negro leading the way, carrying in his hand my stone, which had been taken from my pocket. The building was only lit up by a few long slits in the roof, through which the tropical sun poured, throwing broad golden bars upon the clay floor alternating with intervals of darkness. The interior was even larger than one would have imagined from the outside appearance. The walls were hung with native mats, shells, and other ornaments, but the remainder of the great space was quite empty, with the exception of a single object in the center. This was the figure of a colossal negro, which I at first thought to be some real king or high priest of titanic size but as I approached it, I saw by the way in which the light was reflected from it 
that it was a statue admirably cut in jet-black stone. I was led up to this idol, for such it seemed to be, and looking at it closer, I saw that though it was perfect in every other respect, one of its ears had been broken short off. The gray-haired negro who held my relic mounted upon a small stool, and stretching up his arm, fitted Martha's black stone onto the jagged surface of the side of the statue's head. There could not be a doubt that the one had been broken off from the other. The parts dovetailed together so accurately that when the old man removed his hand, the ear stuck in its place for a few seconds before dropping into his open palm. The group round me prostrated themselves upon the ground at the sight with a cry of reverence, while the crowd outside, to whom the result was communicated, set up a wild whooping and cheering. In a moment I found myself converted from a prisoner into a demigod. I was escorted back through the town in triumph, the people pressing forward to touch my clothing and to gather up the dust on which my foot had trod. One of the largest huts was put at my disposal, and a banquet of every native delicacy was served me. I still felt, however, that I was not a free man, as several spearmen were placed as a guard at the entrance of my hut. All day my mind was occupied with plans of escape, but none seemed in any way feasible. On the one side was the great arid desert stretching away to Timbuktu. On the other was a sea untraversed by vessels. The more I pondered over the problem, the more hopeless did it seem. I little dreamed how near I was to its solution. Night had fallen, and the clamor of the negroes had died gradually away. I was stretched on the couch of skins, which had been provided for me, and was still meditating over my future, when Goring walked stealthily into the hut. My first idea was that he had come to complete his murderous holocaust by making away with me, the last survivor, and I sprang up upon my feet, determined to defend myself to the last. He smiled when he saw the action and motioned me down again while he seated himself upon the other end of the couch. "'What do you think of me?' was the astonishing question with which he commenced our conversation. "'Think of you?' I almost yelled. "'I think you are the vilest, most unnatural renegade that ever polluted the earth. If we were away from these black devils of yours, I would strangle you with my own hands.' "'Don't speak so loud,' he said, without the slightest appearance of irritation. "'I don't want our chat to be cut short. "'So you would strangle me, would you?' he went on, with an amused smile. "'I suppose I am returning, good for evil, for I have come to help you escape.' "'You?' I gasped incredulously. "'Yes, I,' he continued. "'Oh, there is no credit to me in this matter. I am quite consistent.' There is no reason why I should not be perfectly candid with you. I wish to be king over these fellows. Not a very high ambition, certainly, but you know what Caesar said about being first in a village in Gaul. Well, this unlucky stone of yours has not only saved your life, but has turned all their heads so that they think you have come down from heaven, and my influence will be gone until you are out of the way." That is why I am going to help you to escape, 
since I cannot kill you. This in the most natural and dulcet voice, as if the desire to do so were a matter of course. You would give the world to ask me a few questions, he went on, after a pause, but you are too proud to do it. Never mind. I'll tell you one or two things, because I want your fellow white men to know them when you go back, if you are lucky enough to get back. About that cursed stone of yours, for instance, these Negroes, or at least so the legend goes, were Mohammedans originally. While Mohammed himself was still alive, there was a schism among his followers, and the smaller party moved away from Arabia and eventually crossed Africa. They took away with them, in their exile, a valuable relic of their old faith in the shape of a large piece of the black stone of Mecca. The stone was a meteoric one, as you may have heard, and in its fall upon the earth it broke into two pieces. One of these pieces is still at Mecca. The larger piece was carried away to Barbary, where a skillful worker modeled it into the fashion which you saw today. These men are the descendants of the original seceders from Mohammed, and they have brought their relics safely through all their wanderings until they settled in this strange place, where the desert protects them from their enemies. And the ear, I asked almost involuntarily. Oh, that was the same story over again. Some of the tribe wandered away to the south a few hundred years ago, and one of them, wishing to have good luck for the enterprise, got into the temple at night and carried off one of the ears. There has been a tradition among the Negroes ever since that the ear would come back some day. The fellow who carried it was caught by some slaver, no doubt, and that was how it got into America, and so into your hands, and you have had the honor of fulfilling the prophecy. He paused for a few minutes, resting his head upon his hands, waiting apparently for me to speak. When he looked up again, the whole expression of his face had changed. His features were firm and set, and he changed the air of half-levity with which he had spoken before for one of sternness and almost ferocity. "'I wish you to carry a message back,' he said, to the white race, to the great dominating race, who I hate and defy. Tell them that I have battened on their blood for twenty years, that I have slain them until even I became tired of what had once been a joy, that I did this unnoticed and unsuspected in the face of every precaution which their civilization could suggest. There is no satisfaction in revenge when your enemy does not know who has struck him. I am not sorry, therefore, to have you as a messenger. There is no need why I should tell you how this great hate became born in me. See this, and he held up his mutilated hand. This was done by a white man's knife. My father was white, my mother was a slave. When he died, she was sold again, and I, a child then, saw her lashed to death to break her of some of the little airs and graces which her late master had encouraged in her. My young wife, too. Oh, my young wife. A shudder ran through his whole frame. No matter. I swore my oath and kept it. From Maine to Florida and from Boston to San Francisco, you could track my steps by sudden deaths which baffled the police. I warred against the whole white race 
as they for centuries had warred against the Black One. At last, as I tell you, I sickened of blood. Still, the sight of a white face was abhorrent to me, and I determined to find some bold, free black people and throw in my lot with them, to cultivate their latent power and to form a nucleus for a great colored nation. This idea possessed me, and I traveled all over the world for two years, seeking for what I desired. At last, I almost despaired of finding it. There was no hope of regeneration in the slave-dealing Sudanese, the debased Fanti, or the Americanized Negroes of Liberia. I was returning from my quest when chance brought me in contact with this magnificent tribe of dwellers in the desert, and I threw in my lot with them. Before doing so, however, my old instinct of revenge prompted me to make one last visit to the United States, and I returned from it in the Marie Celeste. As to the voyage itself, your intelligence would have told you by this time that, thanks to my manipulation, both compasses and chronometers were entirely untrustworthy. I alone worked out the course with correct instruments of my own, while the steering was done by my black friends under my guidance. I pushed Tibbs's wife overboard. What? You look surprised and shrink away. Surely you had guessed by this time. I would have shot you that day through the partition, but unfortunately you were not there. I tried again afterwards, but you were awake. I shot Tibbs. I think the idea of suicide was carried out rather neatly. Of course, when once we got on the coast, the rest was simple. I had bargained that all on board should die, but that stone of yours upset my plans. I also bargained that there should be no plunder. No one can say we are pirates. We have acted from principle, not from any sordid motive. I listened in amazement to the summary of his crimes, which this strange man gave me, all in the quietest and most composed of voices, as though detailing incidents of everyday occurrence. I still seem to see him sitting like a hideous nightmare at the end of my couch, with a single rude lamp flickering over his cadaverous features. And now, he continued, there is no difficulty about your escape. These stupid adopted children of mine will say that you have gone back to heaven from whence you came. The wind blows off the land. I have a boat all ready for you, well stored with provisions and water. I am anxious to be rid of you, so you may rely that nothing is neglected. Rise up and follow me. I did what he commanded, and he led me through the door of the hut. The guards had either been withdrawn, or Goring had arranged matters with them. We passed unchallenged through the town and across the sandy plain. Once more I heard the roar of the sea and saw the long white line of the surge. Two figures were standing upon the shore, arranging the gear of a small boat. They were the two sailors who had been with us on the voyage. See him safely through the surf, said Goring. The two men sprang in and pushed off, pulling me in after them. With mainsail and jib, we ran out from the land and passed safely over the bar. Then my two companions, without a word of farewell, sprang overboard, and I saw their heads like black dots on the white foam as they made their way back to the shore, 
while I scudded away into the blackness of the night. Looking back, I caught my last glimpse of Goring. He was standing upon the summit of a sand hill, and the rising moon behind him threw his gaunt angular figure into hard relief. He was waving his arms frantically to and fro. It may have been to encourage me on my way, but the gesture seemed to me at the time to be threatening ones, and I have often thought that it was more likely that his old savage instinct had returned when he realized that I was out of his power. Be that as it may, it was the last I ever saw, or ever shall see, of Septimimus Goring. There is no need for me to dwell upon my solitary voyage. I steered as well as I could for the Canaries, but was picked up upon the fifth day by the British and African Steam Navigation Company's boat Monrovia. Let me take this opportunity of tendering my sincerest thanks to Captain Stornaway and his officers for the great kindness which, which they showed me, from that time till they landed me in Liverpool, where I was enabled to take one of the Guion boats to New York. From the day on which I found myself once more in the bosom of my family, I have said little of what I have undergone. The subject is still an intensely painful one to me, and the little which I have dropped has been discredited. I now put the facts before the public as they occurred, careless how far they may be believed, and simply writing them down because my lung is growing weaker and I feel the responsibility of holding my peace longer. I make no vague statement. Turn to your map of Africa. There above Cape Blanco, where the land trends away north and south from the westmost point of the continent, there it is that Septimimus Goring still reigns over his dark subjects, unless retribution has overtaken him. And there, where the long green ridges run swiftly in to roar and hiss upon the hot yellow sand. It is there that Harton lies with Hyson and the other poor fellows who were done to death in the Marie Celeste. End of Section 7